Welcome to the Good Book Club podcast, where we make all our book club meetings and bonus events available for listeners to enjoy. This book club episode is a discussion of Jonathan Haidt's The Happiness Hypothesis, Finding Modern Truth in Ancient Wisdom. The Happiness Hypothesis is a book about 10 great ideas. Each chapter is an attempt to savor one idea that has been discovered by several of the world's civilizations, to question it in light of what we now know from scientific research, and to extract from it the lessons that still apply to our modern lives and illuminate the causes of human flourishing. We absolutely love this book and learned so much from it, and we know you'll really enjoy it too. Discussion leader Joel did an excellent job presenting the book. This book club meeting was originally held on Sunday, December 10th, 2023. Welcome everybody to the Good Book Club. It is our December 10th edition of the book club and we're very excited to be here today. I'm Rebecca Biblioteca. We have a few slides to go through at the beginning, just a little bit of information before we get to our actual discussion. Let's see. Uh, first, we will have our mission statement read. We'll have Melissa do that. We do this at every um, every book club episode. A good book club was created to bring together nuanced Mormons, post-Mormons, and others with a shared interest in Mormonism. We are introspective, critical thinkers seeking to learn, connect, and build relationships through the catalyst of literature. We welcome all who are searching for a safe space to share authentic feelings, authentic thoughts, feelings, and ideas through open dialogue and shared experiences relative to Mormon culture. As we deconstruct previous beliefs, we encourage all to find happiness in the process of discovery, new religious ideologies, spirituality, and life philosophies. Excellent. Thank you, Melissa. We always read that at the very beginning so that we can remind ourselves of kind of what we're all about. So let's quickly go through some upcoming events before we get to our discussion. Um, I helped John DeLynn run the Mormon Stories Book Club, and we have some awesome reading opportunities over there. Gosh, I, hold on. I have a copy of this. Let me let me duck out and grab it. Oh, I just crushed my dog that's laying here. Okay. So one of the books on the radar is Uncultured by Daniela Mestianic Young. It's about surviving the children of God cult. Um, we're going to be having her on sometime in January. We don't know the date yet, but um, I would recommend getting this book for extra reading. And then you can join us on the Mormon Stories Book Club live podcast sometime in January. Um, we also have two other books. I do not have physical copies yet. They're supposed to send me. So um, the one that's coming up first is going to be Romney, A Reckoning with the author McKay Coppins. And this is a biography of Mitt Romney. I know everyone has very strong feelings about Romney one way or the other, but this biography is excellent. So this will be coming up probably the first part of January and we'll get more information out about that, but go grab that book and get reading if you want to join us for that podcast. Another book we have on the horizon is a new book from Signature Book. It will be out, I believe, on the 18th. Now, this is very interesting. You probably all know who D. Michael Quinn is. We, of course, covered... Um, Early Mormonism and the Magic World View on the book club, which was a really, really exciting presentation. We loved that. Anyway, Michael Quinn, after he passed away, his son discovered an autobiography. Um, uh, that he had written about himself, that D. Michael Quinn had written on his computer. And they've been working to publish that. The son has written the foreword and some other notes. But this is uh, D. Michael Quinn reaching out from the other side to let us all know um, some of his thoughts about his life. So this is going to be an awesome book. It'll be available on the 18th. And we'll be having his son on 
the Mormon Stories podcast at some time to discuss the book. So anyway, on the radar, more reading. There could never be too much. <laughs> All right, let's go on. Other reading opportunities, of course. We're still talking about trauma bonded and having Sarah on at some point to talk about this. These, This is a good book available on Amazon. Uh, we also have Navigating on Black Ice. I've been talking to John about having him come on and talk about his book, another excellent memoir about um, deconstruction, which is great. And then, of course, Lisa, who's been attending our book club. I think she's out of town this weekend. I'm letting go. We're, we're going to be in, interviewing her on Mormonish and probably having her come on here to talk about her book too. So that's a lot of books, very daunting, but you know, it is the Christmas season. So give them as gifts, receive them as gifts or read them during the holidays. Our next book coming up for January, and I'll just mention it briefly here and then talk about it longer uh, at the end, is the God virus. And I am the discussion leader. And because I'm the discussion leader, I got the author to come on <laughs> to make my workload less. No, Dr. Ray is incredible. He runs an organization called Recovering from Religion, which is an international clearinghouse for all things to do with people that have left their high demand, high control religions and need help. They have counselors, chat lines, and we've had him on book club before, although we did not record that episode. We've interviewed him on Mormonish before, and he's just wonderful. And the biggest takeaway from him is that he goes, I've studied all religions. I've studied, you know, the people and worked with the people that are recovering from all religions. He goes, you Mormons, you have it rough. <laughs> so we're hearing that for an expert. The God virus is excellent. We'll talk about that a little more detail afterwards. And now I think that brings us to our actual book for today, which is the happiness hypothesis. And I couldn't be more excited to have our discussion leader, Joel. It's so funny. We had just recently met Joel uh, when he popped into the book club and we started talking about who could be a discussion leader. Like he stepped right up. He wanted to volunteer right away. So we could not be more thrilled to have him today. And we'll just turn over everything over to Joel and start talking about the book. So thanks. Awesome. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, I want to just maybe before I kick off, I just want to like thank Rebecca and Landon. The Yuhu guys have been putting out a copious amount of material recently, and I know that takes a ton of time. But as someone who consumes a lot of that, thank you. I know that's no small effort. So, um, well, welcome everybody. I, I've been um, on the book club now a, a few times, and I, I always look forward. This is always one of the highlights of, of my month. Um, maybe by way of quick introduction, I um, I live in and uh, grew up in Utah. Uh, I tell people that my family has been in Utah as long as white people have been in Utah. <laughs> and we, um, I, uh, I have um, six kids, actually four kids from a previous marriage, and then uh, two relatively young ones. And um, and uh, my my faith transition is about ten years old, um, and it's been an exciting journey that started off being hellish and has ended in a in a, in a great way for me. So uh, I'm thankful for the chance to kind of review this book with you today. Um, maybe just by way of kind of housekeeping, if, if it's helpful, some of you, this was, uh, I think, a, a heavier book, uh, I would, I think, to use Landon's words, with uh, lots of different topics, right? Um, and, and so if it helps, you can take it or leave it. I just copied the uh, link to the presentation today. And on there, if it's helpful, is a little book summary that you can uh, refer to if helpful that kind of at least my perspective of important points. So if you didn't get a chance to read the book or you want to refer back to at least some principles that I thought were important, then feel free to uh, to jump in there and, and uh, grab that. That's uh, here is the uh, book summary here. So um, we're going to, we're going to dive in. 
obviously most of what we hope will be the conversation today is just open dialogue with, with you all sharing your perspectives and, and talking through that. I'm curious out of the gate, anybody want to share like a high level impression um, of uh, what your experience was like reading the book? Bruce, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, basically, I finished it yesterday on my walk, and the um, second to last chapter when he was talking about, I don't know, constructing a happy life, and it has to be, you know, relationships and outside stuff, and I'm going like, okay, the book club is one of my, you know, outside areas where I have connection. I've gotten together with Landon and Rebecca now three times once they came down to Southern California and I've gone up to Utah twice. And then the other uh, organizations I, I belong to here in, in Pasadena, um, it, it's kind of, it replaces the church. And it also reminds me that the church provides a lot of those social connections that he talks mm -hmm. about that leads to happiness. So, you know, I guess I'm just thinking, okay, once I lost the church connections, I needed to rebuild. So that was just my thought. Yeah, uh, obviously he touches a lot on that idea of, of the importance of social connections um, in our kind of quest for happiness, right? Thank you. Landon, did you have an observation there? Yeah, I I was uh, I listened to the book, uh, which uh, I, I never quite get as much as when I read the book. But uh, uh, it it was fascinating to me, you know, the whole the whole elephant rider uh, thing uh, was was really a good example. I know we had a discussion on this in the book club like two years ago. I think Troy had uh, uh, come on and gave us a kind of an overview of that. But the interesting thing to me is how much of the of our happiness really is not in our control or how much of it is, is part of that elephant where it, it's, it's naturally selected and, and how much of our reactions and how we react to our environment and everything is all natural selection. Uh, so, you know, the, the horse is really in control or the, the elephants in control in so many cases that you don't really know. And I think sometimes we think we have a lot more control than we really do. Uh, but it it is it was interesting to see you know that as the writer you have some some input into that and you can make some changes uh, and so it's it's kind of cool to think that you you can steer that elephant a little bit uh, even though so much of it depends on you know the natural environment you were born in the DNA the chemicals in your brain uh, and all of those other things. Yeah, it presents an interesting question. Obviously, um, we covered this in those book the the idea of how much of happiness is a deterministic formula uh, versus how much of happiness is the outcome of, of certain conditions, right? Some of which we have more or less influence over. Um, that, that's such an important consideration. Thank you. Uh, Luann? Luann, you're muted. Um, okay. I was kind of blown away by the amount of detail uh, I learned a lot reading this book. I have a lot more to learn. I think I'm going to need to read it another time. <laughs> um, I wanted to discuss the uh, 
trauma chapter with my family because we have a thread going where we're working on recovery from trauma. And to do that, I had to actually outline the, the whole chapter. Um, it was it was that technical and confusing to me, but it, it was good. It had good information. And I do think yeah. that I will start the 15 minutes a day writing. I haven't yet, but I'm going to. Um, uh, also, uh, Landon was talking about the elephant, and I, it was fascinating to me that he never used the word subconscious. And uh, I've always visualized the subconscious as this deep, dark pit of mysteriousness. And uh, in reading the, the chapter about the word divided, it became a little more obvious that it's just the different processes in our body and our brain um, that um, are somewhat, somewhat independent, somewhat interact, and sometimes oppose uh, the. Uh, I don't have the terms. The the thinking part of our brain, and uh, I thought that was fascinating, um, mm -hmm. and uh, a little less mysterious. Yeah, thank you. He, he definitely covers a an entire range of topics. And I don't know what you all experienced, but the, to me, this book was less of a how-to and more of a, almost like an academic treaty, right, of, of what happiness means. And you can certainly draw the how-to principles, but it doesn't always jump off the page to you. Ivana, and then we'll move on. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, we got you. Thank you. So speaking of that, I guess, um, this is a book I read before I read ah, uh, The How of Happiness. He mentions her, uh, the author, in his study on how they 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 studied. And she's the one that came up with, you know, the pie concept. And to me, who, who I've been, you know, I fought depression my whole life. It was liberating to, sit, to, to realize that I just didn't win the genetic lottery, right? He talks a lot about that, that that you are born with a set point of of happiness and some people won the lottery in their genes and they're opt optimistic happy people and some people don't but uh and, and his formula that he had happiness equals set point versus your conditions that are around you plus i mean not versus happiness is set point plus conditions plus your voluntary actions um i'm pretty sure she talks about the actions you can take. So she kind of concludes that there's 20% of the pie of your happiness. 80% is what you're born with your set point and your conditions, but you can get 20% and you can be, you know, there's some podcasts called 10% happier of this and what's, but you can by, and they're really like Luann was talking about the daily writing and stuff. You can um, raise your happiness level. So, uh, yeah, and I would I would also recommend I don't have a copy of it, but I think Luann should rather than rereading the happiness hypothesis, reread the righteous mind by Jonathan Haidt, which I read before I read this one, and it was it's later he published that in 2012. This in is is uh, 2006. He's developing farther his I, but the 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 freeing thing is that. It's evolutionary. It's your genes. It's a lot of it. It's not under con your control. So chill out, you know, <laughs> read Eastern, <laughs> meditate, like he says, meditate, take drugs. I take drugs <laughs> to be happier. So yeah, mm -hmm. you can be happier. Well, That's it. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Um, Bruce. Yeah. I, 
this uh, spurred a conversation with my believing brother. Um, our family has, I guess, the term set point of being reasonably happy and pretty mellow. Both my parents had it and all of my siblings have it. And my brother married a person who doesn't have that. And three of his four kids have our family disposition. Uh, one of them doesn't. One of them is much more like his wife. And I know just practically with my mother, she was in assisted living with dementia. It really helped because she was a pleasant, chatty, easy person to get along with. But that was her na native personality. And I saw a lot of people in the assisted living with dementia that their native personality came out as much more negative. And so we were talking yeah. about that. So un under that point, at least I seem to have won the lottery on um, <laughs> a pretty good set point. Yeah. Speaking as one who didn't win the lottery, I know that that can create some tension sometimes when you're married to people who did win the lottery, right? Because uh, I think there's this sort of sometimes natural expectation that that the people who did win the lottery, they don't understand sometimes those of us who didn't and uh, why we aren't just sort of naturally more happy than the, than, than, than what comes very naturally to them. Um, maybe just kind of to set the premise here a little bit on uh, what I appreciated about his overall approach here. I don't know about your experience, but I know that... Um, as I was a lifelong Orthodox member for 40 years, um, I think it was it was easy, and we'll talk about this in just a minute, it was easy to rely upon the church to give you the answers that you believed you needed to these big weighty questions, right? Uh, the church uh, sort of had this, like, all you, you know, it, it positioned itself as the single source, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Um, and what I, as I then came away from Mormonism as a belief structure, my inclination was to reject all things, not only uh, Mormon related, but to reject all things religion related. Um, because uh, for me, as Mormonism fell, so did God and the rest of uh, religious thought. Um, and I appreciate that that he actually looks at this through the lens of there are some things that we can and should learn from, from different religions, not as an exclusive source, but combined with other things. And that, that's been a refreshing, I think, over the past couple of weeks, probably more so than over the past 10 years. I've, I've broadened my thinking about ways that I can embrace the good parts of both Mormonism and of, uh, of religion in a way that maybe I was quick to dismiss before. And part of that, you know, Landon and, and um, uh, Rebecca, uh, as you had, um, her name drops, fails me right now. I'm really embarrassed that it did. Um, Britt, Britt Hartley on. Um, and and. That conversation, I think, was super eye-opening to me. If you haven't watched that Mormonish podcast, go back and watch that. It was within the last couple of weeks, but she talks about the the, the critical role that a some kind of religious frame framework uh, can play in a, in a person's life. And so, I appreciate that that he looks at philosophy, religion, and science as the basis for how we arrive at what you know what what happiness means. Along those lines, and I'd be curious to hear some of your thoughts on this. Um, it's became it's certainly more clear to me than it ever was before that that Mormonism uh, positions itself as a, as a totalizing ideology, which is that you know as you look at uh, how the Mormon Church positions itself, uh, it tries to become the source not only of how we think but to 
you know, drive prescriptive directive on what we should eat, what we should wear, how we should think, how we should spend our money, uh, to some extent, um, how we feel about professions and jobs and, 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 and all of those kinds of things, how we think about sex and how we think about love. It, it positions itself as the, the, the end all be all source for all of those, um, for all of those questions. Um, and so as we look at this question of what does happiness mean and how do we, how do we pursue that, there really ought to be no more important question than understanding what happiness means and how we can influence that, um, you know, getting closer to what happiness looks like for us. And the challenge I think for many of us, I can only speak for myself, is that when you come from an, a, a totalizing ideology like the Mormon church, it becomes really tricky um, to kind of come away from the idea that there is a single source of, of uh, absolute answers there. And this, and this continues today. I mean, if you look at just the, the most recent general conference, uh, just a, a month or two ago, uh, the Mormon church is still positioning itself as the source for happiness, right? Um, Elder Dale Runlin suggesting that, you know, as we, as we look to the prophet for happiness, we need to look no further. Um, uh, this one, this one talk, uh, do you want to be happy? I thought was especially insightful um, because it, it talks about that idea that, that ultimately happiness comes from a very prescribed way that the church defines happiness. So uh, Lennon, I'd love to hear your thoughts, but maybe a question for this group to think about is, Obviously, the, the goal of this book club is not to talk about Mormonism and why we like it or don't like it. But as we think about how we think about happiness, I think many of us come from a context where we at least need to wrestle with the, with the kind of spiritual upbringing that we, many of us were raised in and how that influences how we think about happiness. So, Landon, did you have a thought there? Yeah, I, I was just thinking as, as I read through some of these uh, quotes from General Conference that the church always told us, you know, how to be happy and that they had the source of happiness. But at the same time, they they told you what was unhappy, you know, oh, those people over mm -hmm. there, they're not happy. They're, they're, they're not happy out on the lake on Sunday. They're not happy with, if they don't join the church. Yeah, they look happy, but they're really not happy. So not only do they define happiness for you, but they also tell you what unhappiness looks like as well. Yeah. So all wrapped up in a nice little bow, right? Yeah, um, and I'm curious for this group here, uh, because obviously, if we believe the Mormon Church, there is no true happiness outside of uh, outside of you know following the prophet and, and living the tenets of the faith. This is there's no right answer to this, but I'm curious if if one or two of you want to share um, as a progressive or post Mormon how your happiness compares to when you might have been more orthodox. Bruce? Oh, yeah. My happiness is incredibly increased since I was Mormon. But while I was Mormon, I was broken. I'm gay. I didn't fit in. Every narrative about me was negative. And I stepped away from the church and kept arm's distance but still kind of believed for 30 years, which I kind of regret because I should have figured out it was the technical term I use is all bullshit um, mm -hmm. long before I did. But then yeah. once I did, and it's about 10 years ago, 
I can remember listening to the Mormon Stories interview with Jeremy Runnels on the CES letter. And I was driving along and um, all of a sudden it just hit me to my core. It's all made up bullshit. And from that point on, then I've been working on trying to figure out how the world works, what's my place in it, all that stuff, because all those little nice pat answers came from the church. And, um, you know, that wasn't good, good anymore. So that, and that's yeah. in part, the book club helps me figure out how the world works and what's my place in it. Yeah. Thank you, Bruce. I know, and I, you know, having talked with a lot of both uh, current, uh, you know, folks who are in the church and those who are out of the church, this quest for happiness or understanding of happiness is super elusive. And, and I can categorically say that as at least as I understand happiness, I'm, I'm happier now than I ever was as an Orthodox Mormon. I don't think that always has to be true for everybody. But for me, happiness always felt somewhat elusive within the Mormon church because I felt like I had the recipe. But for some reason, when I when I followed all the steps of the recipe, I wasn't quite getting the result that was promised to me, uh, even as, a, as an Orthodox member. And so I appreciate now that I can think maybe a little more broadly. Luann and... Um. Since I've left the church, I've lost the sense of dread and depression that I felt every Saturday knowing that Sunday was coming. Yeah, I think some of us know what that means, right? Um, David, then we'll move on. I say for, for the best part of 50 years, this great plan of happiness was always in the future. That you may have joy in your posterity, or the time may come, or when your children do this, you will see the blessings. For me, it was only ever a reinforcement of guilt. If you were feeling happy, then you can't, you can't have been um, self-flagellating enough. If you were feeling you know, attacked, then you're doing the right thing. But there's very little joy that we experience in the present, any other happiness. There was always some reason why we shouldn't be experiencing it as if that is the end destination because we can't have happiness now because we're not at the end of the game. And after 50 years, I got tired of feeling guilty about feeling guilty about not feeling guilty. Um, <laughs> I, I think certainly I feel far more happier now and far more able. And this, this book was a heavy going book. You know, it sort of made me go back and I listened to it several times <laughs> and all I could get out of it. Yeah. I'm just sitting on the elephant and the elephant's going wherever it likes. And occasionally I'm like, actually I'm going to enjoy this and everyone else can so to speak bugger off. There you go. Thank you. I remember I was uh, in England actually and, and president uh, Monson was there and he told, he was telling a story and he used the words bugger off and you could see everybody like sort of cringe a little oh, bit. I thought, actually that might oh, be okay. offensive. That might be offensive. So I apologize if that's, in UK, it's not. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Love it, yeah. Um, so as I thought about maybe how do we cover the, the breadth of this book, um, we're going to play what I call happiness roulette here in a minute where we'll, we'll let chance guide a little bit the conversation. But I wanted to maybe cover some, some underlying foundational kind of ideas here. As we began the conversation, we already talked about this concept of the rider and the elephant and and the idea that while we might have a, 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 a mental ability to, to, to choose or not some of what we think about, all of us are sitting on, at some point, an elephant or always sitting on an elephant that also has its uh, a mind of its own. And that, that what, what challenge does that present? Does somebody want to share like 
why is that even a, a problem or consideration that there's this sort of divided self that we have? Why is it a problem that we have a rider and an elephant? Bruce? Okay, this, this came up with our discussion of um, Sam Harris's book, uh, Free Will. You know, and you're going like, okay, is are we all just this biological set of pre-made choices as we're as we travel through the yeah. world? I still, I guess, I choose to view it as like we may have like guardrails, and we have this little area in between that we have the ability to make choices and stuff, but uh, um, you know. The elephant doing what the elephant I, I've seen in my life, the elephant does exactly what the elephant wants to do uh -huh. all the time. But I also do see where I think, as from the writer's point of view, I've made conscious choices that make my life better. And they took effort and stuff, but still the elephant yeah. is going to do what the elephant is going to do so i don't know that's my thought yeah and I, th one of the reasons why i appreciate this analogy so much is that if you if you think about in riding an elephant it's not that you don't have any control or influence but it's also true that you don't have total control and influence um and so i appreciate that it's not that we're on some robot that we have absolutely no control over at the same time none of us if we tried really really hard but have absolute control over over those automatic or implicit processes that that a lot of our body is subject to, and so I appreciate that there's, as as in a lot of cases with this book, some element of nuance there, or or there is some ability for even though we may have a genetic kind of set happiness level, there's that kind of twenty percent right that that you talked about, Yvonne, and and our ability to influence that twenty percent um, is is worth fighting for, right, Rebecca. Yeah. Am I muted? Am I unmuted? Um, there's that sense that when you understand that concept and you look back at your life as a Mormon and you see that you're really held to task for some things that really are, you know, just part of your nature and not even necessarily anything that's really good or bad, but it's just have you, how yeah. you are yet you're told you need to conquer this or you're responsible for this, or there's something wrong with you that this is part of just kind of your makeup. So it can be a very confusing message because you can look at other people that seem to have no problem following, you know, these scripted rules and laws, you know, random, whatever they are, and you feel differently and you don't know why. And then you're told, well, maybe it's Satan, right? <laughs> That's always yeah. the answer. It might be Satan, but it's not, it's human nature. It's being a human being, you know, it's, it's, it's all that. So I, when you start to realize that it's a wonderful freeing thing, but then I think you also look back at your life and realize there was a lot of times where you felt really bad for something that really wasn't really bad or was almost out of your control because you're just a human being. Um, it's so crazy. I, I, um, I'll share this experience. When I was, when I had my faith crisis, uh, I was serving as a Mormon bishop and uh, we had a rule in our stake that uh, missionaries couldn't go on a, on a mission uh, if they had masturbated in the, in the, in the six months prior to them leaving on their mission. Right. Um, <laughs> and it led to some really weird uh, dynamics. Um, there was this one kid that I was working with in my ward. He really wanted to go on a mission, was doing all the right things to prepare himself. 
but one night he had what he described as a wet dream and um and i, I i'm like well hey why did that matter but as the state president was talking with me about whether or not this kid could go on a mission it came up to the state president that he had this wet dream and and i thought and then we had to go into this big conversation on how much was he aware when it was happening and what how much was he conscious and intentional and like when he had the wet dream was he motivating it and and the state president uh, required me as a bishop to call the church headquarters and talk with the person over the head um, of all you know kind of missionary decisions to understand the perspective on how as a church how they feel about kind of wet dreams and masturbation and that kind of thing and I thought, are we fucking kidding ourselves? <laughs> wait, wait, there's a there's a there is a department over wet dreams. Okay. I'm just yeah, checking out completely now. If there's literally a sign on the door that said okay, I'm done. I'm out. Wet dream. That's is, it. When I talk to this guy, he's like, Look, you need to relax. Forty percent of active missionaries actively, you know, routinely masturbate. So you all need to just settle down. It was the was the church's message to me. Forty um, percent, boy. He's he, he's being optimistic. He's, I'm sure he's. I'm sure. I'm sure he's. Uh, I'm sure he's like down downballing that. But um, but it's it's true, Rebecca. Like we we have we have this perspective, or at least had the perspective in the church that all parts of our body uh, can and should be controlled. That there is no elephant if we pray hard enough, if we do the right things, if we keep the commandments, that kind of thing. Right. And it leads to some really kind of frustrating dynamics with people who believe that they are not on an elephant and just need to be more righteous in some form. Uh, Luann? I think you're on mute there, Luann. Yep. Um, I thought it was interesting that when he discussed towards the end of the book, the development of wisdom, he talked about explicit knowledge, which is facts that we learn in school or that people teach us, but, but tacit knowledge was what we learned from life. And that a lot of things we cannot prepare our children for because they have to learn it tacitly. And uh, and then he said, uh, the tacit knowledge re resides in the elephant. So it was interesting to me to think that if we're developing wisdom, if we're becoming life smart and kind of know how to react to situations, um, that it's it's the elephant and he's not completely an enemy. He, he, he or she can be helpful. So anyway, yeah. it's just a new thought. Some good me. things. Yeah. Yeah. It's, we're not at odds with the elephant. We just need to acknowledge that we don't have control of it. In other words, right. Um, yeah. yeah. Great point. Thank you, Bruce. Okay. When you mentioned that you had to call Salt Lake um, to the missionary department and asking about wet dreams and masturbation, <laughs> It, one of head. my prouder moments, Bruce. One of my prouder no, no. moments. It popped into my head. Was <laughs> that or adjacent to Tom Harrison, the guy who wrote Visions of Glory? Because wasn't he the guy, the psychologist who would an analyze whether missionaries were worthy to go on missions? When you mentioned you called Salt Lake, and yeah, I'm, it's such a those people. Uh, I mean, that's adjacent to a lot of craziness so that's just my thought yeah i know it's, it's a fair question and I, i'm probably not the right person to answer that objectively when i actually had my faith crisis as a bishop the, the state president uh, actually referred me to tom harris and so or harrison and so I, I met with them actually for several years uh one-on-one -on -one in a counseling session and, and i 
to be clear here, even though there are lots of reasons why he's wackadoodle, that never uh, came across in my conversations with him. In fact, I, I personally, just speaking only for myself, kind of put him in the pantheon of people who helped me the most kind of navigate my, my faith transition. So I'm probably not the best to speak to that, but I think your broader point setting Tom aside is that that type of thinking, right, that, that came out um, in Visions of Glory and that kind of thing has has an influence on on some of those decisions around how we think about missionaries. So, uh, Jerry, let's see, Jerry, you're on mute. There we go. Yeah, I was just thinking about what happiness. I think happiness really amounts to knowing what your elephant is. And accepting it, whether, you know, whether you like a lot of activity, whether you're quiet, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert or gay or straight. If you know who your elephant is and you come to acceptance of who that is, then I think you can be a lot happier. I, I listened to a podcast the other day where a guy was describing two people. One had just won the lottery. One had just become a paraplegic. And when they did surveys a year later, their scores on happiness were equal because it, it came down to accepting what you had, where you were, who you were, what you could change and what you couldn't change. So I'm just saying it's about accepting your own elephant there. Yeah, I love that. And we'll talk about the adaptation principle here in a minute. But uh, certainly as we contrast how the church teaches embracing the elephant, the teaching from the church, obviously, is that the natural man is an enemy to God, right? That it has to be something to, that we have to kind of kill or overcome in order for us to reach this level of happiness, as opposed to what you're suggesting, which is let's embrace the fact that there is an elephant. And sometimes that elephant is straight and sometimes that elephant is gay. And that's OK, too. Right. Um, thank you, Jeff. And then we'll move on. Yeah, I was, I was just thinking back to my mission, which was in Japan, and I had contrasting mission presidents the first was very rule oriented and very focused on creating you know the this dread that somebody mentioned before you know the always hanging over your head and then the second mission president completely different much more schooled in psychology not necessarily in this context and he was much much more reasonable with respect to the missionaries and and I happened to be his assistant for quite a while and and had a couple of calls with Salt Lake, which is quite bizarre. Uh, and he, would, uh, <laughs> he would often argue with them, which I, th I thought was, you know, was pretty good. But the thing that, that comes out of that and also related to this book is that when you're in a culture where everybody is more accepting of a, of a more heterogeneous group of views and you understand maybe some of the unconscious or subconscious uh, motivations, you just have a lot less, uh, you just have a lot less conflict and angst in that group. Because that, that's what I noticed in my mission. The, the transition from the first to the second mission president, with the first president, everybody was always on edge. And part of the problem in Japan mm -hmm. is it's just a, it's a very difficult mission from the perspective of the church because you just don't baptize that many people. But if you just decide to kick back and be the minority celebrity in your neighborhood, you have a lot of fun. And a lot of people don't know this, but you have the highest number of excommunications of missionaries out of Japan per capita because of that. Because at some point, you know, you go to the MTC and you're told, oh, you're going to baptize thousands of people yeah. and get there. And it's like hitting a wall. 
And with the first mission president, he it was always a question of worthiness. And the second mission president was more, this is just the situation, you need to live with it. And so it's that cultural milieu that I think can really drive the psychology as well, which is not talked about often. And this is one problem, I think, that in, in the church is that everybody keeps that under uh, under wraps. They don't want to talk about how they really feel. So true. And I, I we're going to move, but thank you. Excellent point. I, I know that um, being the father of six kids with different, at different stages of life, my first four kids, I was Orthodox Mormon raising those kids and my, my two youngest kids, I'm not. And uh, the ability to just love and accept without trying to judge, influence, or push a child down a certain path has made all the difference in how I parent um, and the, the joy that I feel, the happiness that I feel. And it goes beyond parenting. It, it's nice to, to show up with a group of friends or people and not approach that through the lens of whether people are aligned or not with gospel standards. Um, so I, I certainly feel that way. Um, Cool. So we can, uh, as I kind of looked at the book and how we structure it, how we approach this, um, you'll notice, you'll know from reading the book that there are about 10 different sort of chapters or, or topics that, that aren't random, but sort of touch on different aspects of happiness. Um, chapter five in this case, which he calls the pursuit of happiness, I felt was foundational. So we're going to maybe spend a few more minutes there and then we'll touch on the others in the form of this happiness roulette that I talked about earlier. Um, so as he talks about kind of the foundations of happiness, chapter five in this case, the pursuit of happiness, I think outlines a, a number of key principles that are important for us to, to think about. Uh, the first of these is the idea of the progress principle. Uh, anybody wanna who remembers that idea from the book wanna share uh, why we even talk about progress and and what uh, as they as they talk about progress versus achievement, what that what that means. Progress versus result said differently. Anybody remember that concept from the book? Maybe while y'all think about it, um, let me let me share. Uh, David, we'll come back to you in just a second. L let me share with you. Uh, you talked about Sam Harris earlier. Um, Sam did uh, an interview with a guy named Arthur Brooks, who's a Harvard professor who teaches a class on happiness. Um, somewhat coincidentally, I, I was listening to this podcast recently, and and he, independent of this book, came up with this idea of progress and why it's important. We'll play about a minute or so of this, then we'll come back to, to you and, and any other observations, David. So. If you're really a striver and you're really good at what you do, and most of the people listening to us right now, they're good at something, they're really the only ones in their 40s who are going to notice these declines. And the way that you... Just to pause, can everybody hear that? Yes, very good. You notice it is what you know people in the management world call burnout. So you find that your dentist, for example, when he's, let's say, 43, has weirdly starts taking Fridays off to golf. Mm. It's like, why would you do that? Do this trivial kind of hobby instead of doing something that you you love, like being a dentist? And the answer is because humans aren't happy when they're not making progress. The mathematicians will put it that all of happiness is in the first derivative. All of happiness is in getting better. The state is, this is a reason, by the way, Sam, that, that it's very easy to lose weight, but it's very hard to keep weight off. Because when the scale's going down, you're motivated and happy. And mm -hmm. as when you hit your goal, 
the, 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 the reward for hitting your goal is now you never get to eat the things you like ever again for the rest of your life. Right. Congratulations. Yeah. And you know, this is, this is the nature of, you know, how we're wired. Progress is everything. And so what happens is that people get very frustrated and angry and desperate and afraid and sad when they're on the downslope of this, crisp, this fluid intelligence curve. What he also, what Cattell also pointed out is there's a second intelligence curve behind it that doesn't reward the same things. Uh, we'll, we'll pause there. So uh, David, you had a raise your hand earlier. Did you want to make a comment there? Yeah, it was, it was the pursuit of happiness bit that um, the dopamine hit or the chase for the dopamine, the, the road to it could be really long, but the reward was actually minuscule compared to all of the other things. And I think it says something like what you mm. learned or experienced on the Monday, the elephant can't remember on the Friday. So this pursuit of happiness is, is such a temporary thing and we're chasing after something and I think if I remember rightly raises something like sex and food you know and then that's it we move on to the next thing um it goes on to I have to give me something like is it post goal attainment you're rechasing constantly it's like a short-lived feeling I think he described it as yeah thank you I appreciate that um one of the so there's the progress principle, which is that we as humans find our most happiness when we're stretching ourselves and making progress, as opposed to when we've reached some um, some plateau. Um, combined with that is this principle of adaptation. Uh, what, what is what does that mean? Anybody want to share with us kind of the the the, the nature of humans as it relates to adaptation? Okay, so I have heard this principle before, and the truth of it, and it it my husband and I talk about a lot the hedonic adaption, which means no matter what pleasure you have, you adapt to that. So it's like the first taste of a bite of food versus you know when you go along, and and some restaurants they give you little tastes of lots of different things because we are conditioned to adapt to whatever we, and, and when you realize that you won't chase happiness by overindulging, or at least if you can't, your elephant wants to, your elephant wants to always go for the like, 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 instead of the dislike. But, but, but if you recognize that principle in yourself, you won't always be, you know, that I'm going to adapt this, this, I'm going to adapt to this. And it's not going to give me the pleasure that, that it did originally. But I also want to say that progress principle, I like to think of it as joy in the journey that you, that, you know, it's not like you have to achieve uh, or even have these goals that you're writing for, but if you can just have joy in your, in your journey, whatever state you're in. As opposed to the sense that you um, need to arrive somewhere, right? And, and kind of in the upper right hand side of some of these slides that we'll share some relevant Mormon teachings that I pulled out just to kind of, again, bring to light the context that many of us were raised with, right? Which is that um, to some extent, they both support and contradict some of what we read in this book. So th there, there are principles certainly within Mormonism, which is that there is this sense of striving and progression, in fact, eternally, right? That we don't reach this, this plateau where we suddenly are, are perfect. But even as gods, 
there's this idea that even gods are are progressing and evolving, which which can cause some of their own kind of mental gymnastics trying to figure out how that's possible. Um, but uh, thank you, I appreciate that, Shauna, and and then we'll move on. Um, I kind of this is reminding me just kind of to bring it all at least in my brain into one thing. Um, this is I call this kind of a concept the happy hollow effect and happy hollow is a children's little playground mini zoo in San Jose and my daughter my oldest daughter went there we uh, she was like three or four years old had a great time and then we went with her kindergarten class on a field trip and so she and her friend ran around oh remember this remember this and they ran to you know the whatever playground and then you could just see her like oh and then oh 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 <laughs> there was this and they'd run over to the next the next uh attraction oh and you know it was never they they never <laughs> got the same experience the second time around and a couple years later or a year and a half older and you know you just you want to have that hit of this is yes, let's do it again. And then it's just never the same. And so things like this, I call the happy hollow effect. <laughs> it was it was fascinating to watch. It was over and over and over again that that happened. I think we need to trademark that. Thank you, Shana. Um, Bruce? Yeah, this kind of concept came to me when I was in the MTC, which was a terrible experience for me. And uh, getting out of the mission field was better. But it was the concept of making progress you know how you have your odometer on your car and you have a trip meter that you can set back to zero. And we were told several times, you know, if if you have, if you backslide on goals and, you know, with missionaries and stuff, that whole masturbation thing comes up, but it goes back to zero and, and you try to make progress towards being good, but then something god or whatever is setting your odometer back to zero and you're at square one and you're nothing mm. you're shit you know and that was that was what got me to step away from the church right when i got back from my mission i still went to byu they didn't require you to go to church in those days and mm. i just stepped away because that whole getting set back to zero was was too difficult to think about all the time. Yeah, I can imagine that would have taken a real toll. Um, thank you. So obviously, uh, one of the things that I appreciate about the uh, the approach in this book is that uh, it blends together, I think, in a, in a meaningful way, a number of different, both Eastern and Western perspectives on on happiness, right? Because the the idea of the Eastern philosophies is that that you find happiness by letting go uh, in the spirit of uh, a, a Buddhism kind of tradition where you detach and you let go. And that's where you find happiness from within. A, a Western approach is based on the idea that um, action and looking outside of yourself is one of the ways uh, to, to find happiness. And I, and I appreciate for what it's worth, the perspective that this is a balanced approach, that it's not, that it's not all one way or the other. And that, that happiness in this case uh, comes from being able to balance or combine those, those the, the inward journey combined with an, an outward journey. 
Uh, and that that being one of the ways to to approach that 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 idea of balance comes through obviously in a number of different parts of this book, including politics, which is how he kind of um, ends the discussion in, in chapter eleven. Um, you'll you'll remember this happiness formula, and the idea here being that happiness uh, is not deterministic. There's no kind of magic silver bullet that we can apply that automatically creates happiness. But when happiness happens. It's a combination of these variables, which includes um, recognition that we have a biological set level. Uh, I appreciate his perspective that it's not a fixed point, but instead, as he describes it, a, a range or probability distribution. Uh, and I think that comes back to the idea that while we may kind of either win the lottery or not, uh, as it relates to how we're genetically predisposed toward happiness, there is some influence there that that can be sort of moderated either direction a little bit, right? And I appreciate appreciate that view of someone again who who didn't win the lottery there. Um, and then the other two components of that happiness formula are made up of the um, the conditions, and and this is a combination of things that we can change and things that we can't change. So things that we can't change would be race, sex, age, disabilities, that kind of thing. But things that we also can change then would be some of these external conditions. Um, and that that combined with voluntary activities, these are the things that we choose to do. Uh, the combination of those three variables adds up in, in a way that that should create happiness. Again, not as a deterministic guarantee, but as, as something that should result as, as these three variables are optimized or in balance. Um, Landon, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, you know, when we talk about biological set level, uh, the thought kept coming to my mind, you know, they talked about, you know, winning the genetic lottery, you know, are you naturally a happy person? But I, I guess I'm not really sure what that means, because, you know, oftentimes people who are very happy also are the same people who get very depressed. Um, and other people, I, I'm someone who's not naturally happy, but I also don't get natural, very depressed. I'm kind of in the mid range, but, you know, I look at people like, uh, Robin Williams, you know, you would think he's the happiest guy. He's making everybody laugh. And yet he had this, these extreme bouts of, of depression. So I think sometimes yeah. it's hard to just say that biologic that some people are biologically happy because they might also at the same time be, be predisposed to be very biologically depressed. Yeah. A great, great point. I, I, Wish that I were smart enough to know uh, how to how to you know respond or explain that, but uh, but you're right. That doesn't mean that if we're winners of the lottery or not, that we're always one way or the other. I guess is uh, is one of the takeaways there. Um, so th there's a couple more principles here than from chapter five that I think are worth underscoring. Um, as you look at the things that contribute to happiness. There's a few factors here that that he calls out that I think are important. One is uh, certainly the preeminence of relationships, um, forging and having those relationships. Two is is having a sense of control, uh, that sense of autonomy that we can make and decide important things about our life. And then finally, um, this idea of finding flow, um, uh, and uh, that's from the Hungarian um, philosopher. Um, yeah. Me, I'm, oh, I, pra I practiced saying it before and now I can't remember. Chizhezmihai, I think is how you pronounce his last name. Um, I'm curious from this group. So there, there is a suggestion that religious people on average are happier. Uh, those of us in a kind of post or you know progressive Mormon position 
Um, I think earlier in the conversation, we said that maybe we're actually a little happier now without religion. So how do we reconcile that? Anybody want to take a stab at, at um, how we reconcile the sense that religious people on average are happier? Bruce? Yeah, this came, I struggled with this concept about your mission being your happiest two years. And I kept coming back to going like, no, it was good two years, but every year since then has been happier. But what I guess where I came to the conclusion that we had this little set of parameters as missionaries on what we had to do to be successful, to be good and stuff. And I ended up winning the mission lottery in time and place, the late 70s in Chile, where, you know, um, I think the highest month baptisms I ever had were 36. And it was like three fam three large families. And, you know, sadly, a couple of the families, the dads became bishops and one of them lives in Provo and their kids all went to BYU and married Mormons. And I'm going like, I got them into this cult. But (laughs) within the parameters, you know, um, at that time, you know, telephones were rare, transportation was difficult. So the micromanaging that I read about missionaries now didn't happen. And we had a set of rules. We were successful at them. It was a nice, warm, you know, it was like Southern California, pleasant place. The people were really nice. So for that two years, it was within a a real framework. I had some success and happiness. And um, once you get off your mission, then the whole world is there and you know, you can't go back to that little um, narrow set of criteria to be happy. Though I still have nightmares 40 years later having them coming and asking me to go back. And I'm going like, you realize I'm engaged. <laughs> these, these nightmares, while they're less frequent, still happen 40 years later. I'm sorry, that's the equivalent of like showing up to school naked or something, right, or whatever. So, um, Landon, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I go back to what I just said about, uh, you know, depression, you know, people being very happy and also being very depressed. Religion, not only does it introduce heaven that makes you extremely happy, it also introduces hell, which makes you extremely miserable. So although you may be may reach levels of, of high in your religion when you screw up, uh, you likewise go to the opposite extreme where you're devastated or when you find out that the religion that you believed in and 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 held so so highly is lying to you 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 also become very angry and very disappointed because of the religion so i i think it plays both ways and then i also think that that uh, there's an artificial uh requirement to try to be happy when you're in a religious person and you know i you, you you look at mormons and they'll all try to portray the perfectly happy uh life and the perfectly happy people and yet it's also got the highest use of, uh, you know, depression drugs uh, in, in the country. You know, <laughs> So yeah. in, on one hand, I think people report that they're happy because that's what they're supposed to be. Uh, and, and in the background, they're there taking uh, drugs for depression and whatnot, because there's there's so much responsibility put on. Yeah, that's fair. And, and Adam and Jeffrey will come to you in just a second. The 
part of the challenge here is that as uh, as folks who were accustomed to being a, a very part of a very active social network um, as a person who went through a faith crisis like many of you and you lose that social structure that's one of the reasons why i'm grateful for this community um is that th there is no doubt that there is a strong connection or or dependence i'll call it uh, between a person's happiness and their social ties that they have right and to the extent that religion provides that even though it comes with a ton of baggage um th there's value there right and 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 we um one of the things that I'm learning to embrace is the idea that um, I, I can't kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater in this case, where everything that it, bad that a religion brings doesn't mean that it's holistically bad in all areas, especially considering that that social connection that um, that can be there. I'm not saying it's there for everybody or that it's positive for everybody. Adam. Hi. Yeah. So I, I can't turn on my camera. Sorry. Uh, this is my first time. Okay. to. This is my first time one of the book clubs. I'm coming from San Antonio. Welcome. Thanks. Uh, I was just going to comment kind of on what you were just saying about the fact that uh, there are structures that are provided by religions that I think contribute to happiness, or at least can. It's kind of the C in that equation, the the conditions of your life. One of those is your relational um, networks that you have. Another yeah. is feeling connected to a larger purpose, something outside yourself. And whether or not the you know, the purpose that religion provides actually corresponds to reality. Uh, feeling connected to something can contribute to feeling happy. And so I think that even though for many of us who have felt hurt or burnt by by the church, um, it's it's worth remembering that for a lot of people, the church really does work and it works very well for a long time until something comes to upset that that equilibrium that they have. And uh, that's not to say that those things that religion provides are exclusive to religion. They can definitely be found outside, but I think they come ready-made within religion, and that helps a lot. And I think we see that in the church as well. Yeah, good, good, excellent points. Thanks, Adam. Glad that you're you're here. Um, the, the tendency to want to dismiss everything Mormon or religion, uh, religiously related, uh, is something that I'm personally trying to fight against. I'm in a mixed faith marriage right now. My my wife um, is uh, is a TBM, not in a hyper, uh, you know, orthodox way, but she's TBM. And and as we try to figure out how to raise our two kids, um, you know, I I there's a part of me that does not want them actively involved in any kind of like primary activities or you know church activities. Her point to me, and I think it's valid, is look, do we really want to ostracize these kids? On, on the sake of a principle where where we don't have them participate in primary and now suddenly they're excluded from you know, social activities. That, that is a tricky question and one that there's no easy answer to, but it's one that, that I'm certainly wrestling with. Um, Jeffrey? Yeah, actually, the, well, I had two points. One related to what you just said, that it's social context relevant, meaning that if you're in a situation where a lot of your social value is defined by the community, then I think those types of people that where their preferences match that particular community, they're going to be happier. I mean, I, I, uh, I mean, one thing on that research as a data scientist, I highly question much of that research because I don't think they're sorting out the confounders. You know, my, yeah. my, my estimate over, and I also as a bishop, so I've had that perspective as well. I think about a third of the people in the church are genuinely happy or content because their preferences, the way they come to the world, everything kind of makes sense. You know, if, if 
if you're in a nuclear family with two heterosexual people that have more or less freely chosen that relationship and they're in an environment where they can thrive, and I have a couple of brothers like that, I think you're happy. And, and you know, but if if you're off of that path somehow, all uh -huh. of a sudden the environment doesn't accept you. I mean, one, one of the things yeah. I learned in Japan, which I thought was a very useful metaphor, I had this Japanese a guy who's a longtime friend now. Uh, he was originally an investigator. He told me once, he said, he said, you know, in Japan, we view that all of us are born onto two circles. And you just have to figure out what circle you're on. And then you figure out what that gives you more or less your opportunity set. And you don't really care that other people are in different circles. He says, you in the West, you think you're born on lines and those lines are either upwardly sloping or they're downwardly sloping. And if you're going up, then you're happy. If you're going down, then you're not happy. And that was like a very insightful comment. It's the same thing in the church. If, if you get in the church and something about you doesn't match the expectations, like, you know, you're homosexual or you don't want to be in a nuclear family or whatever it is, all of a sudden there's just a huge amount of uh, angst and conflict that creates these these difficulties, and so I'm, I'm just not so sure. I mean, if you were if you really were to control for all of these other factors, I I seriously doubt that people are more or less happy in in religion. I mean, you could go and say, look, maybe somebody in these book clubs, they're happier on average after you control for income and marital quality and all those types of things. They may be happier than people not in book clubs. You know, so I think that yeah. we should be careful about that research. I mean, I, I hear people. Yeah, I agree. I, there's a. Sorry, I cut you no, off. No, go ahead. Sorry. I'm done. There's a link here to that same podcast that I played a, a snippet from earlier where Sam challenges, uh, just like you did, is that data accurate? And, and are we looking at the data the right way? <clears throat> is religion in this case really a, a, a proxy for social connection? Um, yeah, it's absolutely valid. Uh, Brenda? Yeah, um, I was never really happy in the church. I was uh, pretty much, um, being a woman, it's really hard to um, feel validated um, when you don't quite fit in the exact, like like Jeff was saying, in, into that cookie cutter Mormon, you know, lifestyle. Um, and I always felt, you know, I was, pushed into something that I didn't really care for. Like I, whether I chose, you know, to be a stay at home mom with kids and all that kind of stuff was, if it were my choice, that's fine. But I felt like I wanted to do more than that. And I grew up kind of like, like a tomboy in the sense of wanting to hang out with the guys and do all the stuff the guys are doing. I love to run. I love to play sports and things like that. So I felt church community was great, but I always felt it was a little superficial. And I think that I, I as I've talked to Jeff a lot, um, I felt, I feel more like that for men, it's a lot more validating on average, you know, than, than for women, especially this cognitive dissonance where, especially when I was growing up, polygamy was uh, front and center. Um, I'm in my 50s now. So at the time I was in my teens and, you know, going to like these um, young single wards, I'd we get in discussions where the guys would talk about their second or third wives and 
it just was really like demeaning um, to me. So, uh, but you know, for happiness sake, I think just right. It's the having community, you know, if you have fine friends that you really care for and you continue that, I think it's really important. But uh, I think that, that validation, if it's if, if it's cognitive distance at any point, then you you have to find your place in life where it fits best. Yeah, I love that. Um, thank you. We'll come back to our trademark happiness hollow, right? That we talked about earlier. <laughs> um, thank you, uh, David, and then we'll move on. I can't help but think um, from some of my experiences in my professional life where I have dealt with some of the most difficult trauma with individuals, whether it's domestic abuse, coercive control. And one of the most common things that you will hear, well, why do they stay? And the reason that they stay is because it's a method of their survival. Because while some of these very vulnerable people are taken to the edge of their own life, they know that in a certain behavior they can manage. And if they go to support groups, those support groups will help them normalize what each other's trauma is going through. So when they go back to the most difficult situations, they know that what they um, can survive by is manageable. And I can't help but draw some of the same psychological similarities to the church, perhaps not in the most traumatic ways, but a lot of people will go to church because that manages their day-to-day -day trauma or their day-to-day -day challenges. And they will meet with one another to support with one another. And it's not until you're truly out of those scenarios that you can start rebuilding your own landscapes. Um, and it is very difficult, but you can't tell somebody who's currently in trauma, just step out, it's far easier. Everyone has to find their own process out and whatever support they can have, whether it's in a in a a violent relationship or coercive relationship or being a manipulation or under control in other organizations it's pretty much the same people try to manage what they can until they find a way of realizing to get out love that thank you um we've got about 20 minutes left um i, I know that i wrestled with the sheer number of topics meaty topics that were presented in this book so we're going to let uh, chance guide us here for the next 20 minutes as we round this out we're going to do a little bit of happiness roulette and uh, basically we'll let the roulette wheel here determine what topics we talk about so we'll spin this little sucker and see where we go next in our conversation how's that looks like we are going to go right to the end to on balance so let's jump there um the um <clears throat> All right. Um, this is the conclusion of the book, actually. <clears throat> and um, and you'll know, for those of you that, that read the book, there's this, um, uh, he kind of brings it together, actually, in a political vein, talking about the ends of the political spectrum and his suggestion here, and I'd love to talk about your perspective on it, is that uh, liberals, which he is a self-identified liberal, um, they're uh, what's good about them is also bad about them. And what's bad and good about conservatives is the, is the kind of inverse of each other. His suggestion is that, that liberals in this case are experts in thinking about issues of victimization, equality, autonomy, rights of individuals, 
uh, especially those who are underrepresented minorities or nonconformists. Um, conservatives, on the other hand, um, do a better job of thinking about loyalty to the group and respect for authority and tradition and sacredness. Um, the suggestion here, obviously, is that um, if we, if one side overwhelms the other, it leads to an ugly outcome. Um, and, and David, I can't speak for UK politics, uh, but for US politics, I think many of us, regardless of what end of the spectrum we sit, would likely agree that uh, that we're in a, in a decently ugly place right now. But curious, without without making this about politics, but since the book introduced it, um, how do we think about this idea that that um, the, the the path is found through balance rather than through either end of the spectrum? And specifically, the suggestion that if we want to find wisdom, then we look in the minds of our opponents. Let me kind of make the question maybe a little more narrow there. Um, a, where have you found value in that, if you have? And B, how do you do that? How do you climb into the mind of someone who thinks differently from you? Luann? Um, okay. Um I, I just had one sentence before you ex expanded on the question. No, go ahead, that please. Was that it gives some hope. Uh, we look at our political situation, it doesn't look very hopeful, but to open our minds and not uh, fall into hate and judgment is a good thing. I think meaning that the hope comes from uh, the belief that people can kind of uh, find that balance or like leverage the strengths or advantages of the other perspective? Is that what you mean there? Yes, that you can open your mind to the fact that there might be some truth on the other side. Um, yeah. Seems like a how, lot how do we do that? Close down and think, okay, we're, we're in the right. They are wrong. We believe in evil. They're evil. We're good. Um, and there's no dialogue. So opening your mind to learning something from the other group sounds like a good idea to me such a great idea yeah um I, I guess the question is um since we can't change the world but we can maybe influence ourselves to some extent um but what have you all found as ways that you can do that that you can maybe not get caught in this idea of an echo chamber where you uh, feed yourself only with the ideas that you want to be fed based on what twitter or facebook or instagram feeds you um rebecca do you have a perspective there yeah, that's a really hard one, especially when you're, you know, following a lot of <laughs> echo chamber news, if you know what I mean, or you're in <laughs> yeah. an echo, you know, as a podcaster, we run into that all the time. And, and sometimes I'll read things about, you know, culture, cult mentality. And I'm thinking, am I, am I also, have I put myself in another <laughs> cult? <laughs> have I created chamber? a new Do cult? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm not kidding. There are earmarks of that. So, you know, I think it's it's just a natural thing to want to hear what you already believe, right? That makes us all very comfortable. It's hard sometimes to listen to another opinion. I just try to to think about people that I know that I that I admire and trust that have other opinions and sometimes I try to see things through their perspective. If I can't myself pull myself out of it enough, like I'll think 
I wonder what my dad would have thought of that, you know, and he's a TBM, <laughs> totally. but do you know what I mean? It lets you kind of analyze things like that. If you, and also I think it's important to recognize, <clears throat> just recognizing it, right. Is half the battle. I may be <laughs> right now in a huge confirmation by its bubble. You know, we all are, yeah. we're all very siloed. That's one of my favorite words now, because I think it just describes, you can be siloed under yourself. You can be siloed in a group like here at book club, but you just have to work at it. You really have to work at it to look at other opinions and not dismiss people, I think. But it's hard. And, and I think it almost gives, goes against human nature, right? We all have a myth that we all, you know, is important to us. And then we have other people that share that and they're important to us and it goes out from there. So you just have to work at it. But it's a real, yeah. it's a real I thing. Love that. <laughs> just taking a, a conscious pause, in other words, right? I, yes. Uh, without being too forthcoming here, I would describe myself as left-leaning um, politically. And, and what I'll do sometimes is I will consciously choose to watch Fox News, for example, um, just because I know that I'm going to hear something there that likely uh, does not sit entirely with me. And I find that if I approach that from an open perspective, I do gain a view, at least of empathy, if not total agreement in some cases. And so I appreciate that. Y Yvonne, did you want to? Yeah, amen to Rebecca and you, but and not to bring up that book again, because it has in the chat, but the thing that helped me the most was reading that book, The Righteous Mind, mm -hmm. because he sort of expands on his whole political thing in that book. But the interesting thing is just as we aren't responsible for our happiness set point, we are act we are so genetically programmed to be either um, conservative or liberal. He talks about that. And it's a, it depends on which values you you privilege. But that is something that you're kind of born with too. So, you know, it does help me to, to think that way and think, well, cause you know, you're, it's something that we can, we can change and, and harmonize and everything, but we're born with, with that, that leaning mind with, with a mind that leans liberal or a mind that leans conservative. That's what I got out of the book anyway. Yeah. Love it. Thank you. Brenda. Yeah. I think we're born with these either more of a um, conservative or liberal um, bent. I think that's really true. I think some people are have a harder time with change um, and others, they embrace it. And then you have everything in between. And I think uh, sometimes, um, you know, those are the different poles that people kind of cling to. And depending on how anxious they are, they can also cling to those holes more more readily <laughs> um and uh but but back to the point about where how do i balance um information i think it's quite difficult uh, at least in the u.s in this climate to to not get a biased opinion um even in the news um so i tend to go to outside sources when i can uh i do like npr I also like to go to other countries and what their assessment is of us, uh, whether it's, you know, on, in going to the news in France or, or the, or, B, or the BBC um, in the UK or something like that. I, I think if you, and then, you know, I, I lived in Japan. I even sometimes will look at that news, but if you can find the same kind of uh, news stories, it kind of, puts you back into a more stable perspective. Like you see all these different perspectives on what the news 
they, they, they're perceiving this news to be, and you can get a better, uh, a nuanced understanding, but yeah. not necessarily understanding your Fox brothers and sisters versus um, the, yeah. the opposite side. <laughs> I think yeah. that's hard. I, I love that. I, thank you. And I, I think um, so much of that requires the discipline. I think Rebecca talked about, which is just being conscious about it, right? Being willing to acknowledge, I, I might be, I might be, I might be biased, and I need to consciously do something, right? Whether it's consulting an external news source or whatever you, whatever gets you there. Uh, thank you, uh, Shana. Then we'll move on. Uh, this is to the point of a good place to look for wisdom, therefore, is where you least expect to find it in the minds of your opponents. That reminded me of a movie um, that I became aware of. It's a, it's a documentary. Uh, I knew the director, Ben Recchi. And so it's called the reunited states and it was from 2019 or 2020 it won a bunch of awards in 2020 and it's all about. Um, getting together people from vastly different political sides i'm i'm reading from the website. Uh, and how it uh, it talks about how to bridge the divide and how. Um, groups are coming to get bringing people together to try and uh, have constructive conversations and to understand the perspective of others of the other side and i it was a fabulous movie and they have a whole i don't know how active it still is but they had a whole um community of people trying to you know facilitate these these kinds of conversations i highly recommend it yeah i love it if you want to post a link to it that'd be awesome um, Luann? Uh, just adding on what Shauna said, um, the group Better Angels, I watched some documentaries about them and it showed bringing groups of liberals and conservatives together in uh, group discussions. And uh, before, before they were finished, there were several sessions, they became friends. And hmm. uh, anyway, uh, I just wanted to add that, that uh, that's kind of my ideal is uh, become a better angel. Yeah, I like that reference. Thank you. All right, let's jump into happiness for light again here, folks. Let's see where we're going to go next in our conversation. The Faults of Others, Chapter 3, I think is what it was. Let's jump up there. Oh, we all love to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> that's easy to do, right? All right. Um, there's this, and some of this kind of blends in with what we were just talking about. Um, but there's this idea of naive realism, which is the idea that that we all see the world as it really is. Um, that's why I kind of put Neil A. Maxwell over here, but that others don't. And if and if they don't see it the way that we do, it's either because they're they're stupid or ignorant, right? Um, and um, his suggestion here is that if you know if he could nominate one candidate that um, that would bring you know more kind of peace and harmony in the world, that would be to uh, overcoming to some extent naive realism. I think we've touched on these principles a little bit, but any other thoughts there on on either what creates it, how we get out of it, Adam? Yeah, so. <clears throat> I think y'all read the uh, the book An Immense World for your last book club, if I'm not mistaken. And actually, this part made me think of that because this concept that every every animal has its own distinct like perceptual world that it lives in, 
uh, I think applies to humans in a metaphorical way as well, because each of us has different uh, experiences, different conditioning, different moral sensibilities uh, that make us perceptive to some things in our environment, but completely blind to other things. And so um, this this relates to the last chapter that we talked about as well, just um, how it's important to consider that each of us will always have blind spots, uh, no matter how much we learn, no matter how uh, how how well we are able to you know get over our biases. It is it is impossible to do so entirely, and so I think yeah. to just consider that uh, this is not a one time thing. It is a continual um, journey, I guess, and we have to continually check ourselves and ask where our biases are and look to other people to help us overcome those blind spots that we have. Right. Yeah. And and part of that is just being willing or, you know, able, I guess, more than anything to, to acknowledge that the blind spots exist, right? As long as we are unaware that they're there, then there's no chance that we're not going to be influenced by them. Uh, Rebecca. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Landon and I, in our podcasting, um, we are dealing with the residents of both Heber, Wyoming and, sorry, Cody, Wyoming and Heber Valley as new LDS temples are supposed to be built there. Um, both of these situations, the residents feel that the temples are in these places that, you know, they had to change all the zoning. They had to go behind. Anyway, it's, it's a whole big convoluted story in each town. But when you talk about naive realism, um, the members in both towns, they really honestly, and, you know, we watch their city council meetings, we read the minutes, we look at things. They really don't see anything any other way. Uh, they have huge city council meetings where they go in and try to present the different sides. The resident groups that we're working with just, you know, want the temple to go in a different place that it's zoned for. They bring in codes, zoning laws, you know, places where it's happening, you know, all these kinds of legal things like that. The residents from the church who come in and speak at city council say, I love the temple. God wants the temple here. The prophet wants the temple here. This temple will bless all of you, even those of you that aren't members. They so sincerely believe all this that they literally can't see some of these other things about breaking the laws in the town, changing the zoning codes, any of that. And it's so interesting for us to be exposed to this. And it's also so interesting for us to see the residents who are not members, you know, that we're working with um, as they watch these other people who they see are completely sincere, but they, they cannot see another point of view in their minds. They honestly believe that a, you know, giant, 88,000 square foot temple um, that'll destroy the dark skies will somehow bless the lives, you know, of these people. And our residents that we work with are just, they're just floored. They just, they've never seen it before. But again, it's just the inability to see another point of view because you've been, I'm going to use that word siloed in the LDS point of view your entire life. And of course, the temple will eventually bless these residents that are so cranky right now. Of course it will. So it's been fascinating to watch this real time example. Joel, you're mute. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, and it, that's a great example of how you see this getting locked in. And I'm sure that that people probably show up to that conversation with the belief that they're being objective, with the belief that they're being generous and all of that, right? And, and the, the irony is obviously that, uh, that they're clouded. Um, Landon? Landon, you're muted. 
Uh, I was just going to say in the uh, LDS culture, we're taught to avoid conflict. And so in order to avoid conflict, a lot of times we make all of our decisions look exactly the same and think the same way so that we aren't in conflict with anyone so that there's this happy brotherhood all the time. And we, you know, how many times in a, in a priesthood lesson uh, or something have someone raised their hand and said, well, I disagree with this and they're immediately shot down. You're not allowed to have another opinion uh, because this is the opinion the brothers have expressed and it's up to us to follow it and we don't introduce any conflict, whereas conflict can be a, a good thing at times. Uh, it, can, it can help us open our eyes to see things a different way. And sometimes we just have to step back and put ourselves in a different position. I, we, As I was telling you earlier, we went to a bar last night, but, <laughs> but we go in and we every time we go, it's the same thing. They make you give your driver's license, which is fine because you're supposed to be 21, but then they scan the barcode on the back of it in Utah. They scan the back of your driver's license. Then in this case, they asked us if we had weapons and I'm going, why just because I want to go in and get a drink, do I have to be tracked by the state and, 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 and patted down or whatever? It's like, what if we turn that around? What if every time you walked into a church, they had to scan your ID and track you and, and ask you if you had weapons? There's been church shootings. Why, why is that not a requirement? And the requirement is there because I live in the state of Utah, which uh, dictates and says that we don't want you drinking because we're mainly Mormons and therefore we're going to make it difficult for you. If they step back and said, what if we put that same requirement on ourselves? They certainly wouldn't do it. So sometimes you, you have to be able to step back and look and say, is this fair? Is this, is this really, uh, should I be doing that to somebody else that I wouldn't, wouldn't put on myself? Yeah, that's fair. Although, um, to advocate for their side, you'll, you'll remember when they added barcodes and temple recommends, right? Uh, so. <laughs> but, but but that was the church, not the state, that was tracking you. And you oh, said, yeah, well, that's voluntary. Yeah, you have no choice. <laughs> Love it. Um, Bruce and, and then Adam. I just had some thoughts on this. You know, the, the unanimity and speaking with one voice, just some of the little reports on what goes on in the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency uh, related to Blacks in the priesthood and discussions of how there was some maneuvering to get that, um, you know, reversed in 1978 or the um, exclusion policy being made and then being reversed and stuff. I also think that it's interesting that, what was it? Sometime recently, the apostles and stuff were told to stop keeping journals because if, you know, the discussions that were being had and people were able to write down their thoughts got out to the public in the future, I think it would present a really different view of how the church is managed. So yeah, the desire to yeah. unanimity and, uh, and stuff. And the irony there is that um, there's so much discord amongst the brethren um, that does not trickle down to the, to the rank and file. Right. Um, Cause I think, you know, when you were just talking about how it would be nice if we could go to a release society or others quorum or something like that and actually have real dialogue. 
uh, and that that seems to be you know squelched. But as I understand it, um, you know, we talked about Tom Harrison earlier. He uh, he was, as I mentioned, a, a therapist for for me for a number of years, and he worked closely with the brethren. And he said, "Gosh, there are so many politics involved with how you get things done at that level." And and my words, not his, but he he basically said that you know Elder Ballard was the biggest dick ever, <laughs> and everybody in the in the quorum of the twelve couldn't stand working with him because he was such an obstructionist. Uh, and and it raises that 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 anyway. I, I wish to some extent that we had that same level of of, of freedom around discord uh, at the, at all levels of the church. So, Adam, and then we'll steer toward wrapping up here. So I'm reading a book right now called Letters to a Young Therapist by Irvin Yalom, and he is a psychiatrist and therapist. And one of the things that he said that I thought was fascinating was after he summarizes or interprets a patient's story or statement, he will then ask them, now please help me see what blind spots I have. What did I miss in the story? Yeah. Uh, and I really loved that that stance towards therapy, but I think it works in, in everyday life too. And I actually tried this with, with my dad the other day when we were talking about uh, LGBT issues, which he he's very true believing and I'm, I'm not. And so this is sometimes a contentious area for us. Um, and I, I learned a little bit about him and his perspective by asking this question at the end. And what I really like about this is that if we can, if we can incorporate that phrase into our conversations, whether that's in our family or our social media circles, then it, it changes the, the culture, I think a little bit because a, when People are going to tell us their opinions anyway. They're going to point out the things that we missed. But if we approach it from a stance of wanting to know and letting people know, hey, I do want to know what I missed, then we'll probably be more receptive to those anyway because we're actually looking for things rather than trying to defend our initial stance. But other people might also feel more willing to search for their own blind spots and ask the same question when they're done. So that's that's something I read the other day that I thought is applicable and I'm probably going to try doing more often in the future. Yeah, thanks, Adam. I think there's a good reminder there, uh, kind of coming back a little bit to what Rebecca mentioned earlier, where for many of us who kind of left the church and are now actively involved in post-Mormon, uh, you know, sort of culture, I, I find myself and watching others fight the tendency that we don't become as pedantic and as sort of uh, self-assured as we were as when we were in the church, just on the other side of the coin. And so I think those type of reminders can be good to kind of keep us so that we don't fall, fall victim to that. Um, we'll start our wrapping up here. Maybe just one little sort of, if I jump on a, on a personal pedestal here as we wrap up, the the, the chapter on the felicity of virtue uh, resonated with me because I know that that for many of us, we recognize that being a good person and doing good things is one of the key components of the happiness formula. And there's often this suggestion that if you are uh, either atheist or post-Mormon, that you lose somehow the ability to do good or to be good. And, and I take real issue with that uh, for lots of reasons, right? Because I know that uh, some of the motivations that I have today to be good and to do good, in my mind, are, are, are more pure and more altruistic than when I was in the church, right? In other words, if I, if I did good as a Mormon, largely because I was worried about either being punished or because I wanted some blessing, th that feels like a bad reason to do good um, as opposed to doing good for the sake of good. Um, and I don't know if this book club has ever, you know, covered the book Good Without God, but I appreciate that principle uh, that happiness is tied to doing good, but also that there's nothing about that that requires you to be a part of any kind of organized religion. Um, so maybe just to end the conversation here, there's, I don't know how many of you know Ricky Gervais, 
um, but he did a next Netflix. Oh, um, he is. did oh. a Netflix um, series called Afterlife, uh, and I appreciate the perspective here. And then, if there are any other comments after this, we can we can watch we can entertain those. But we'll largely steer toward ending on this. But this is uh, from that series, and someone asks him about how being good is possible as an atheist. Go on. If you're atheist and you don't believe in an afterlife, I don't. if you don't believe in heaven and hell and all that, mm. why don't you just go around raping and murdering as much as you want? I do. What? I do go around raping and murdering as much as I want, which is not at all. Because he's got a conscience. But if death is just the end, what's the point? What's the point in what? Living. Might as well just kill yourself. So if you're watching a movie, and you're really enjoying it, someone with Kevin Hart in. Yeah. And someone points out that this will end eventually. Do you just go, oh, forget it then. What's the point? And just turn it off. No, because I can watch it again. Well, I think life is precious because you can't watch it again. I mean, you can believe in an afterlife if that makes you feel better. Doesn't mean it's true. But once you realize you're not going to be around forever, I think that's what makes life so magical. One day you'll eat your last meal smell your last flower, hug your friend for the very last time. You might not know it's the last time, so that's why you should do everything you love with passion, you know? Treasure the few years you've got, because that's all there is. I watched Ride Along 2 five times. Well, you haven't wasted your life, then. Definitely not, no. Love Kevin Hart. Yeah. Everything about him. His humour, his comedy. Films? Comedy films, mainly. Mainly, yeah. Yeah. Whatever gets you through. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming over. Pleasure. Um, all right. We can... Uh, we can... Uh-oh. Uh Looks like we've still got uh, Ricky Gervais going here. Just one second. Let me find... It's not coming through now. We oh, can't it's not hear or see okay. anything. No, I don't okay. think so. As long as it's not on the recording. So I'll raise my real no, hand. I, I just love Ricky Gervais. I love him so much. And I absolutely love how clear, you know, he makes it because everyone's asked that question when they eventually realize, oh, you don't really believe like I believe anymore. And they're so worried for you, right? But no, yeah. exactly what he said. There's, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of magic in that. And I love, he just said it mm -hmm. so clearly. I want that clip. I want to play it for everyone who questions me. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Well, thanks everybody. I appreciate your uh, the, the interaction and dialogue today. That's obviously no more important topic than happiness. And hopefully we've uh, together kind of unlocked a few things there, but thank you. You did a, you did a great job. Thank oh, you. It was amazing. Thank oh, you, thank Joel. You. That was incredible. We feel so happy now. <laughs> <laughs> right we've discussed it all so so thank you again to joel that was incredible i think we our next slide we'll talk very quickly about our next book um which is going to be the god virus this is by dr daryl ray and i'm going to read a quick little blurb of this and then we'll talk about his appearance next month because he is going to come join us on book club so hold on a second let me pull this up do 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 there it is. Okay. Uh, Dr. Del Rey, psychologist and lifelong student of religion, discusses religious infection from the inside out. It's such an interesting metaphor. Um, how does guilt play into religious infection? Why is sexual control so important to so many religions? What causes the anxiety and let me neuro 
neuroticism. Yes, there you go. Around death and dying, like we just saw. Um, how does religion inject itself into so many areas of life, culture, and politics? The author explores this and much more in his book, The God Virus, How Religion Infects Our Lives and Culture. This second-generation book takes the reader several steps beyond previous offerings and into the realm of the personal and emotional me mechanisms that affect everyone who live in a culture steeped in religion. Um, examples are used that anyone can relate to, and the author gives real-world guidance on how to deal with and respond to people who are religious in their families and among our friends and coworkers. So right along with the clip clip that we just saw. And like I said, uh, Dr. Ray runs the Recovering from Religion Institute. It's a giant organization that helps people all over the country with their different, you know, scenarios as they step away from religions or feel like they might want to take a step that way. And he's going to join us for our meeting on, let's see, the 14th. There it is. Thanks, Melissa, for putting the date on there. <laughs> anyway, he will be at our book club meeting at noon. So we start at 11. So we'll kind of do our little discussion. And then Dr. Ray will jump in and set us all straight on what we've been talking about. And he does have one stipulation for coming on. And like I said, we've had him on before and it was the same way. Um, if you would like to ask him a question, you have to have read the book. And if you haven't had a chance to read the book during the month, Come to book club, listen to everybody, but I can understand his point of view, right? He comes, people come up to him, what about this? And you're horrible and this and that. And he's like, have you read my book? And they're like, well, no, but still, you know, read the book, then come and have a dialogue. He's just a friendly, wonderful person. So just keep that in mind. If you didn't have a chance to read the book, you know, just come and listen and participate in that way. But I'm, it's not very long. It's a very quick read. So I hope that everybody will have a chance to read it. And then we can just ask him questions nonstop because he's a fascinating, interesting person. So anyway, that's for next month. And I'll put links everywhere to that. Um, let's go through our final slides. Just a couple of things on the radar. We always liked everybody made aware of. We also run the Good Media Club, which is just a Facebook page where we kind of put out information about documentaries or mini series or, you know, any kind of thing that's not a book, but that's a media that might have something to do with the Mormon landscape. You can go there and find that on Facebook and we just kind of curate stuff there. Um, you can find us if you want to listen to past episodes of the Good Book Club, you can find us wherever your favorite podcast is found and just search the Good Book Club podcast and we'll come up. Um, you can also find us on YouTube where you can search the Good Book Club for more for post-Mormons. And we have, we started taping, I was trying to remember, probably about a year and a half ago. Prior to that, we didn't, which, like I said, The Righteous Mind, love that book. We had an amazing discussion, but that was before we started taping. <laughs> Dang it. So that one's not there, but there are a lot of really good ones. So go look us up there and you can watch some former discussions. Um, Landon and I run a podcast called Mormonish, where we talk you know, a lot, a lot of people in book club, we talk to them, we talk to authors, we talk to other people in the Mormon landscape. So that's fun to check out. We're on, you know, anywhere you find a podcast or on YouTube. And let's see, what's my next slide? I know I, can, I should have this memorized, right? Instead of relying on the slides. <laughs> if you're joining us for the first time today and you'd actually like to be a part of the book club, you can email me at thegoodbookclub at mail.com, not gmail, not, but mail. You can also go on Facebook and find us. That's our logo right there. And you can send us a, a request to join. We talk on Facebook amongst ourselves during the week and share or the month, share things about the book club and the book that we're reading. So that's really fun. We're also on Instagram. Not so much TikTok anymore. We've kind of let that slide. We need to pick that up. So um, if you do email us at thegoodbookclubatmail.com, sometimes the responses go to spam. So we didn't forget you. Go ahead and check that and, and we'll get you all hooked up so that you can be part of us. So we will end our recorded portion right now. Thank you.